Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff text me 949-415-6256 please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book the comprehensive guide to clinical research it's been selling really well getting very well received by the community thank you guys so much for that also check out the youtube member page join this channel to get perks that's my youtube uh, membership it's 10 bucks a month you get a monthly mastermind exclusively it's a zoom call every month with other youtube members uh, you also get weekly videos exclusive to the youtube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences so check that out really means a lot to me and thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show Guru Nation, welcome back to another episode. This is a very special episode. We've got Dr. Peter McCullough on. Dr. McCullough um, really needs no introduction, but he's actually, before Joe Rogan, because uh, most people will know you from Joe Rogan, but I know you from this lady that we both know, yeah. Dr. Hazen, all right, with her book, Let's Talk Shit. Uh, she's been mentioning you like for months. You know, she's like, Dr. Peter McCullough, he knows what's up, and Dr. Malone, and, you know, I'm not going to get political with this podcast. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be talking about Dr. McCullough's career, but it's an, it's inevitable we're going to discuss COVID, guys. And then Chris is my co-host. He's on today, so he can ask his own questions. We're both fans, um, and we're both naturally skeptical people, so... We never believe, or at least me, you know, we never believe, okay, just because FDA and Big Pharma says, or CDC now says this is what you need to do, that this is what you should do. And same thing with the conspiracy people, right? We're, we're skeptical people, but we're, we're glad to have you on so we could talk about your career because I think what's gotten lost in this whole mix is your career. You're not just some random doctor. You're a researcher. You've published thousands of papers you're a practicing cardiologist in dallas so you're actually treating patients you're not just like a talking head who says well on paper this is good this is what we should do you're actually treating patients on a regular basis uh so let's start with your career like when did you, when were you first interested in medicine well dan chris thanks for having me on the program so introduced i'm dr peter mccullough and i am an academic practice in Dallas, Texas, and I practice both internal medicine and cardiology. I'm probably about the 4% of cardiologists that keep that broad certification in medicine because I'm an attending on uh, the medicine service and 
um, you, know, you know, I'll commonly encounter internal medicine problems like infections and, and clearly been busy for two years with COVID-19. But I think I decided uh, to go into medicine the day I was born. I was just uh, programmed to do it. I never considered any other career. I, I left the house at age 17 to go off to college. I went to Baylor University in, in Texas, which now is really getting some attention with uh, its sports teams. Boy, the, the yeah, uh, basketball. basketball team winning the whole thing last year, NCAA champs, first time in Texas in 50 years. And now our football team uh, did great this year with the Big 12 championship, winning the Sugar Bowl against Old Miss. But yeah, I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know who Baylor was until last year when they when they made the NCAA championship. You no, know, Baylor was founded by Judge Robert Baylor and it was, it was the oldest college in Texas. It was formed during the Republic of Texas. It was 10 years where Texas was its own country, still a proud independent state in so many ways. But Baylor's a great launching point. Many uh, esteemed physicians have, have, have basically have trained at some point in time in the Baylor family, uh, the Baylor School of Medicine is in Houston. The School of Dentistry is in Dallas. School of Nursing is in Dallas. Uh, law is in Waco. But at any rate, you know, I went on from there to University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. I finished top of my class at Alpha Omega Alpha and launched from there to University of Washington in Seattle in medicine, which at the time and still is the top-ranked medicine program in the United States. It's just ahead of the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, one of the Harvard programs. I trained in medicine there, and it was common back in the day in the 1980s to do service afterwards. And many of my fellow residents uh, went into military service or became CDC officers. Uh, I, I took a, a position in rural health and I served as a rural practitioner of a three-year contract uh, and uh, served an underserved uh, community in the northern part of the lower peninsula of Michigan. And then in the third year of that, I, I was able to integrate that with going to the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Uh, and still to this day, it's in the top five public health uh, uh, graduate schools in the United States. Wonderful experience. I went on and did my cardiology fellowship training at what's now the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine and trained under who's considered the father of interventional cardiology, William O'Neill, a uh, very instrumental leader. The very first paper I published was in the New England Journal of Medicine under his leadership. And I mean, Beaumont Hospital uh, and its collection of community hospitals is credited with basically the revolution of primary angioplasty in acute MI. To today, the, the, the standard of care in someone's having a heart attack is to get the artery open within just really a matter of minutes with a catheter and a stent. That was actually all from Beaumont. That's where that came from. And we went up against Big Pharma, uh, the Cleveland Clinic and all the universities. They were all in bed with Genentech at the time giving thrombolytics. And what a great experience it was to, in a sense, uh, a, a break a, a brand new paradigm. From there, I went on and and studied heart and kidney function throughout my career. I had uh, multiple different leadership positions. Um, uh, I was uh, the chief of cardiology for a period of time at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, and chief academic scientific officer for Ascension Health, St. John Providence Health System. So I was in the, the C-suite, the uh, corporation C-suite of the second largest health system in the United States. And I, I wanted to spend the, the, the uh, final years of my career down in Dallas where I um, took a position uh, in a large health system in Dallas where the predecessor who held that position was the uh, Clyde Yancey, was the president of the American Heart Association, and he went on to be chief of cardiology at Northwestern. So I had moved into a, a nice academic position and led programs uh, in a research team and furthered advancements in heart and kidney disease, of which I did amass over time uh, over uh, 600 publications in the peer-reviewed literature 
focusing on this. When COVID-19 hit, though, I knew that it was time for the big players in medicine to step up and make contributions. So let's, before we get to COVID, because that's a rabbit hole we'll never get out of, um, which, <laughs> I don't mean, we're still in it. Re- clinical research as a physician, okay, not many physicians know much about clinical research. So for you to have gotten exposure to clinical research early on, can you talk a little bit about the importance of clinical research in your career? And clinical research is the lifeblood of it, 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 you know, advancement of, of medical science. As you know, as a clinical trialist, I've led a large uh, multi-center clinical trials as the overall principal investigator, or steering committee, or executive committee. Uh, I've also, I'm also diverse. Though. I mean, some doctors are just focused on therapy trials. Uh, I organized and was the senior um, leader of the um, BMP multinational study, which was an in vitro diagnostic study. That was the, the, the seminal study published in 2002, New England Journal of Medicine, that changed the world. That basically taught the world that we could use a blood test to help diagnose heart failure. And it turned out that blood test, BMP or B-type nitric peptide, won all four major FDA clearances. Uh, that is as a diagnostic aid, uh, as an aid in prognosis for uh, screening and management. So uh, it really uh, became a really, one of the real winners uh, in medicine from in vitro diagnostic perspective. Uh, so I've done that. I've clearly worked in the imaging area, focusing on uh, safety for the kidneys, contrast-induced acute kidney injury. And in the last few years, I've really become a drug safety expert. I've led data safety monitoring boards for multiple large programs and have had to make some very difficult calls with my communities, including stopping uh, uh, some momentous clinical trials programs because of safety issues and have been involved in the primary committee call and then oversight from a secondary committee and interfacing with the highest levels of the U.S. FDA. And I've worked hard to keep a good name with the FDA so they know uh, that when they're communicating with me as a, as a study chairman or DSMB chairman that they know the quality is high, that the integrity is high. Uh, you're right, over time one does gain a lot of regulatory science experience and there's a lot to it to understand uh, you know, how to understand. Actually, believe it or not, uh, I believe it or not, now at the University of uh, Virginia, there is actually a graduate degree in regulatory science. And so, it's, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So. A couple of the colleges do have a master's in clinical research now. I know uh, North Carolina State, Arizona State University has master's clinical research program. So it's starting to get more, I guess, uh, spread out into the community. Chris and I, we're trying to get more physicians, research naive physicians who are practicing in the communities to do research. Uh, so it's not like it, it's very important that we discuss your career prior to COVID so that we have some context because the way you've been made out in the media, I think, is unfair. And uh, I mean, extremely unfair and i have very little experience with that i only had one hit piece written about me and that was like eight years ago but you you're getting them every minute like (laughs) hit piece after hit piece what do you think that happened like what was it when was the turning point where you went from just another researcher to enemy number one of the industry right you and malone basically but if you're bucking the narrative that's that's the problem Right. Well, you, you know, I've I've presented at the high on the highest stage. I presented to the Congressional Oversight Panel of the FDA in 2007 on a, a product label expansion for a whole class of drugs, and uh, spent a tremendous amount of time in Washington on that. I've presented uh, before the European Medical Association on in vitro diagnostics, and 
I've uh, uh, lectured at um, you know, really the most prestigious institutions in the world. Uh, two years ago, I was an endowed lecturer at Harvard in two major departments. And so, um, boy, when I've done all those things, I, I wasn't smeared in, in the internet or didn't have uh, terrible things uh, written. And, and it's just, and I'm the same person. It's the same integrity. It's the same uh, interpretation of scientific data. But I, I think it really happened when I was asked, and it's a very, it's a, it's a high honor to be asked to testify uh, in front of the U.S. Senate. And I was invited by Senator Ron Johnson to testify in the Committee on uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. And Senator Ron Johnson was at the time the majority chairman. Gary Peters was the mi minority chairman. And it's a high honor to do that. I mean, I, you know, I was uh, you know, asked to give America my opinions on the treatment of COVID-19. And uh, you know, those are opinions under sworn testimony. Every statement I made was pinpoint referenced. I was basically referencing my own work. So uh, we, you know, to fact check, it would be fact checked right to my own publication. And I was holding up the protocol for my own publication. And I was shocked to see the next day that there was an opinion editorial written in the, in the Wall Street Journal. But it was written by the minority witness. It was written by it was written by another person who gave sworn testimony and accusing me of being a snake oil salesman of the Senate. And he also swept in Ron Johnson, Harvey Risch, and George Fareed. And, and I thought, I said, you know, that was just, that, that was the most um, unprofessional, um, uh, cowardly, uh, deplorable thing that an academic physician uh, could do. Because you know, here I was, I'm the most published person in my field in the world in history. I now have over 660 peer-reviewed publications in PubMed. Harvey Resch from Yale is considered one of the top uh, chronic disease epidemiologists in the world. He's a full professor of medicine at Yale. And then George Fareed is a former, he's a Harvard graduate and a former NIH scientist who's in the senior, senior years of his career. And he's trying to help out um, underserved people in South Central California with COVID-19. He was given his practice experience. You couldn't get a better majority team that was very respectful, and we were very um, honest with America. And you know, in medicine, we're, we're general. We get ready to uh, make a presentation. You know, I'm always uh, respectful of people, and, and, and to receive that from uh, who is really a, a relatively junior doctor uh, uh, at an institution on the on the uh, you know East Coast uh, was shocking. And, and I realized, wow, the, the world has been changed. So here's a young person who's being intentionally and very publicly disrespectful. In fact, he's being defamatory. So he, he doesn't have any sense of what he set himself up legally. I mean, you know, if I was to do that to somebody in public, I, I better get a Lloyd's of London policy because there's going to, you know, mm -hmm. find pain that's going to come out of that. Yeah. So, so from there, everything kind of turned, right? You went from this... I guess industry respected. I I think you still have a lot of respect in the industry, though. Like if you actually talk to physicians, uh, like Dr. Hazen, for example. I mean, maybe she's a minority, but they have nothing but good things to say about you. Well, I currently chair many uh, programs. I, I chair many day safety monitoring boards on the executive committee of major programs. You know, during the pandemic, I had publications in the New England Journal of Medicine on my on my on my normal topic. So I, I'm the same person. I've been changed. Uh, it's just that you know I am applying uh, some heavy hitting academic skills to COVID-19. I think I think the rest of the field isn't used to seeing that. 
they really don't know how to, um, uh, you know, how to grapple with them. Uh, Chris, I know you got questions, but my first, let me just ask one. Okay, so knowing that you've done clinical trials, both clinical, preclinical, um, treatment studies, academic studies, published papers, what what's your biggest like gripe with the way the COVID vaccine studies were designed and handled? Because I know you went in on that on Joe Rogan, but if we can just do like a Cliff Notes version of that, like your specific problems with the way the studies were designed and executed. You know, it's it's hard to be uh, critical in the sense that it was Operation Warp Speed. It was a um, situation and things were moving very quickly but I did publish an op-ed in the hill in uh, August of 2020 and one of the things Americans will know is I always call it ahead of time so you know if I'm wrong on something you know you can tell me about it because I put it in print and I and what I put in print in August of 2020 is that the COVID-19 development program for the vaccines was a great gamble that we were gambling everything on the vaccines. We weren't putting resources into early trials on therapeutics. Uh, we weren't being uh, put uh, any effort on clinical strategies or risk stratification. Everything was just on the vaccines. Uh, and now that what we understand is is that you know from the very beginning, just look at mechanism of action. You know, loading a vaccine on a lipid nanoparticle. Just that idea alone. The idea that anything. Anything has to do with the vaccine, lipid nanoparticles go everywhere in the body. And it's now incontrovertible. They go to the brain, the heart, the adrenal glands, the, the reproductive organs. I mean, we never want a vaccine to go there. Never. Uh, in fact, I was reviewing a paper by Wang and colleagues from China uh, studying lipid nanoparticles. And just, you know, there's a wonderful chart of where they go in the body. Uh, so if you, if you were to ask me then, is it a good idea? To, to, to base a vaccine program on lipid nanoparticles? I would say no. Say, so listen, if we had a program and we are trying to deliver uh, a beneficial treatment to the brain or the heart, like let's say a, a transformative uh, replacement uh, gene or whatever, I'd say, yeah, it's a good idea. So it depends on what you're using lipid nanoparticles for. Uh, but the idea of using lipid nanoparticles for a vaccine, I would check that box and say, no, bad idea. Now the next, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say for the mRNA platform, I mean, is there a silver lining maybe that there's a lot of potential applications for oncology that they're already discussing about about doing and, and, and moving quicker because of the COVID vaccine? Well, not necessarily. I mean, the, the these platforms have been out for a long time. There's about two dozen of them. As a cardiologist, I can use one of them. It's called Petirisan. Petirisan is a messenger RNA product. And it's a small interfering me messenger RNA for the production of uh, an amyloidogenic protein. So I can prescribe that. Um, but these have been around a long time. The reason why they failed is they typically don't install enough genetic material to produce enough of a replacement protein to make a difference. And that's the reason why in Fabry's disease and cancer and all these other areas that, you know, they've been around for decades and basically have been failed technologies. But this idea of loading in the genetic code for the spike protein on a lipid nanoparticle. So, so we know from the very beginning, lipid nanoparticles go where we don't want them to go. And now the second issue is now we're, we are uh, uh, providing genetic code, either through messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA, for production of the spike protein in a broad array of tissues. 
So I check that box and say, no, bad idea, bad idea. Spike protein, we already know it's bad. We are publishing papers saying it's bad. We know it damages blood vessels. It causes endothelial injury. I mean, this was all known through 2020. We were publishing the papers. I can just pull the papers and show you. So it's like, no, check that. It's a bad idea. Bad idea. Don't do it. And on top of that, how are we going to control how much spike protein is made? Uh -huh. So how do we shut it off? Now, maybe we just need to produce a little spike protein, get immunity to it, and get, get it out of the body so it doesn't damage the body. But to inject genetic code and have an uncontrolled duration and quantity of spike protein uh, in the human body with a vaccine for COVID-19, I think is the biggest biological gamble I've ever heard of. Right. And then, and now, ju just to load that up in a two-month clinical trial observation period where vaccines uh, should minimum have 24 months of observation and genetic technology products like these should have five years of observation is absolutely unconscionable. It is an unconscionable idea to even propose to do the trial. And many doctors uh, who are open to speaking their mind tend to agree with you. Dr. Hazen, of course, being one of them. Yeah, she's one of the ones. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about um, as far as the spike protein? So what do we know about how long, like from natural infection, how long does it stay in the body and how how quickly does the body get rid of it uh, versus the vaccine? Do we have data on this? There's two recent papers. Uh, one is by Patterson and colleagues end of uh, July showing that he was able to recover Bruce Patterson from Northwestern Stanford. He started in cell DX. Bruce is a top of the line clinical pathologist, great researcher, um, was able to demonstrate the S1 segment recoverable from CD positive 16 human monocytes up to 15 months <laughs> after the respiratory infection. Now, granted, they were sick patients. And now we have the most recent Chertow paper from the National Institutes of Health, it hit the ResearchGate preprint server. But this is the first NIH autopsy study. And this is a real bombshell. Uh, what they've shown in 44 people who died of COVID-19, and they died at different time points from the start of the infection. On average, people were sick for nine days, no mention of early treatment. They get hospitalized, and they have these ravaging courses of COVID-19, and they die. But the point is, when they died, and they had their autopsies, the virus was found everywhere. It was in the brain, the heart, lymphoid tissues, subcuticular tissues, bone marrow, everywhere. And the virus was alive and it was replicated. Wow. And the person who lived the longest and died, he lived 230 days. Now he was immunocompromised, but the virus was alive and replicating for 230 days. So I got to tell you, I think the Chertow paper is a bombshell. Both of those papers together, one can conclude, no wonder we have long COVID syndrome, right? No wonder people feel sick for a long time. No wonder people intermittently test positive for a long time. You know, people have always thought, well, I got COVID-19 two or three times. Well, with the legacy variants from wild type all the way to Delta, you really couldn't clinically get sick twice. Now, Omicron's broken through natural immunity. But you couldn't clinically get sick twice, but people could intermittently test positive for a long time. Uh, and, and now we know from Patterson and Chertow that that's the case. Now, for vaccines, uh, there's two papers that I've been involved with with Tony Karagopoulos from Greece. And we've shown that the messenger RNA almost certainly stays in the body a long time. I mean, a month or longer. 
So there must be continued production of spike proteins. And we know that from a paper by um, Elena Ogata from Harvard and the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease, where she showed in at least one subject that there was measurable spike protein in the blood after vaccination for 29 days. So obviously the messenger RNA had to be there probably uh, to produce it. And now I interview Bruce Patterson on the McCullough Report, which is America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, that's my show. And Bruce has said he's looked at, he's got 1,200 people who got vaccinated. And as far as he can look in the future, he can find spike protein in them. And he actually finds the S1 and the S2 segment. And that's really important because the S2 segment, that is the more proximal segment of the spike protein attaches a nucleocapsid that has a strong and unfavorable interaction with two cancer genes, the P53 gene and the BRCA or BRCA gene. So that's bad news that we have a basically an oncogenic factor in the bodies of people now for months after an injection of messenger RNA vaccine. You can imagine with boosters and multiple shots now. So spike protein loading in the human body is a great concern. A paper by Banzel and colleagues, it's fully published, shows the spike protein moves around in what's called exosomes, little phospholipid packets. Uh, so that spike protein is in the body for a long time. No wonder people feel bad afterwards. No wonder we're seeing extended range in time, uh, thromboembolic phenomenon, cardiovascular phenomenon. There's a great worry. There's a report out recently, I just tweeted out today, about insurance companies and actuaries actually seeing increased rates of mortality in the middle age group. Now, you probably saw that a 40% excess mortality. Mm -hmm. you know, it's and it's not due to COVID respiratory infection. They were clear about that. Um, the idea is what other exposure has a large chunk of Americans been exposed to in the last year? It's a COVID-19 vaccine. <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> alcohol. Alcohol and drugs, maybe. I don't know. But, yeah, definitely interesting to think about. Um, as I'm far – yeah, oh, go sorry. ahead, Chris. I'm, I'm just curious. You, um, does exposure to Omicron, so natural immunity, does that provide any um, immunity to the prior variants? Yeah, there is a, a paper. Now, it's a small sample size, but it's out of the African Research Institute by – Khan and colleagues, Khan's the first author, showing that those who get Omicron, they clearly get a, a pretty rapid immunity to any more Omicron. I mean, the antibodies crank very fast because Omicron, by the way, replicates 70 times faster than Delta. The paper from Hong Kong University showed that. But interestingly, uh, Omicron patients develop back immunity against Delta. So one of the reasons why Omicron, the, uh, by the way, Omicron today in the CDC NowCast prediction system has hit 95% of all U.S. COVID cases are right now anticipated to be Omicron, which is stunning. And how did, how did Omicron do it? It basically out-replicated Delta, and at the same time, it shut the immunologic door on any future Delta cases. So that's what happened. So... In regards to like Omicron, so I'm on Twitter. I try to follow all different kinds of people on there. You're one of them. And there's others also who say very different things than you. Um, they say, you know what? Thank God we have this vaccine because we're, we're minimizing deaths from Omicron. And the data shows that the people that are hospitalized and die, this, this wave tend to not be vaccinated. Is this data being manipulated in your opinion? Or like, what are your thoughts on, the, on, on this narrative? I don't think the hospitalization data are trustworthy because of the practices. So the practices are 
uh, and have been recommended by the CDC that if an unvaccinated person comes in, that they get COVID testing and for anything, heart cath, hospitalization. So there's a lot of coincident COVID-19 uh, and a report out of Jackson Health in Florida suggested even 60% of quote, COVID hospitalizations in the unvaccinated are actually not COVID respiratory infections. They're just testing positive because they're doing so much mm. asymptomatic, you know, respiratory symptom, asymptomatic testing. So they just crank in a lot of false positives, particularly when the PCR upper limit of, of the cycle threshold is over 28, which almost all the hospital labs are cranking it high. Yeah. So I think the hospitalization data are, are in a sense um, biased or falsified because the, un the vaccinated don't undergo uh, testing unless they actually have the respiratory illness. So the only thing we really can rely on is uh, the data when someone is actually hospitalized and we can um, understand why they're in the hospital. They've got to get to some analyzable situation where we actually know they have COVID. And those data are, are, are pretty hard to find, but uh, there is one from a, a trustable government source and it's from the Ivy network, Ivy. And it's a uh, CDC, uh, NIH, um, government-sponsored consortium, and it's trustable. And the first author is 1040, 1040, and it was published in JAMA just a few months ago. And, uh, and I'll bring it up for you here and be able to tell your listeners the data. One of the things I've been very careful with Americans are, is, if you notice, I cite the literature. I don't wing it on any opinions. And that's the reason why the the people who may try to fact check me uh, end up just uh, giving a false information because they're not matching the citation. So the citation is 1040, it was published in JAMA and uh, November 4th. And in this data set, there were 45% of people at Delta, 55% uh, had legacy variants, probably alpha. And what they showed there is for those who were admitted and they actually had respiratory infection, there was a benefit to receiving the vaccine. There was a 59% adjusted odds ratio for the progression of COVID-19 in the hospital, okay? But the bottom line is death, death. And among those fully vaccinated in the hospital, mortality was 6.3%. And for those unvaccinated in the hospital, mortality rate was 8.6%. Wow. And, and the p-value was 0 0.36. Wow, so, it's uh, almost insignificant. Uh, well, no, I mean, there is, numerically, it's different. And sure. Very close, though. But it's not, a, it's not a giant differential. So um, so people say, well, Dr. McCullough, is there a benefit to getting the vaccine? I said, well, you, you know, uh, you know there, there's some benefit there, but it, it's, it's pretty modest. It's certainly not preventing death. And then we have other papers that really just kind of ripped the Band-Aid off. This one by Annika. Sing Singaragam published in Lancet, and that's from the, um, the, the ATACCC study investigators. They did very careful case contact tracing with the Delta variant. They found 39% of all the transmission going on in the community is from fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. Hmm. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's because just, that's the next narrative, right? The next narrative, and now they're changing it. But it was, well, you're you're selfish because you're not getting vaccinated because you you, you don't care about the elderly, um, because the unvaccinated spread the virus yeah. well, in greater yeah. amounts than the unvaccinated. Is there any basis to this? Like greater no, exposure? Not, no, our CDC director has basically come out and said that this summer, saying, "Listen, the vaccines don't stop transmission." 
we had papers, one by Acherian, one by Rimerisma uh, from uh, the Wisconsin Department of Public Health this summer, showing vaccinated, unvaccinated, equal and high viral loads of Delta. The average cycle threshold, by the way, was like 22, which is really high viral loads, way higher than we saw with Alpha or the wild type. And then in the in vitro cell culture models, uh, the vaccinated were equally as infectious, equally as infectious. So um, I can tell you, when you put those together, you know, getting a vaccine uh, doesn't mean anything in the workplace. It doesn't protect anybody uh, from anything. You know, to take a vaccine is basically just for some personal protection, maybe against fulminant disease in the hospital. Um, that would be a pretty modest benefit. Now enter in Omicron. Our CDC told us as of December 10th that 79% of Americans with Omicron are fully vaccinated. Um, with uh, with data from Denmark dated uh, December 13th from their uh, Ministry of Health, 79% of Omicron patients fully vaccinated. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It looks like it looks like Omicron has basically uh, broken through completely. Uh, you know, it breaks through natural immunity. It clearly breaks through the vaccine immunity. We can't expect now to basically say take a vaccine to protect against COVID-19. We just wouldn't have any support from it. What about the pan vaccines coming out? Are you are you excited about this stuff? The there's some biotechs working on pan vaccines. They're supposed to um, take care of all future strains of COVID. You, you know, well, there's some pan vaccines that are thought to be covering different organisms like influenza and, and COVID. Um, but it, it, it's almost immaterial because covering when mass vaccination is promoting super dominant variants, right? So we went from 100% Delta to now 100% Omicron. So it doesn't matter. As soon as the next vaccine comes out, it's going to be 100% to the next uh, strain that is resistant to the vaccines. So, so it doesn't, yeah. In that vein, uh, I mean, you know, the media narrative is the unvaccinated are causing um, the variants. It would seem to me that it's more likely the vaccinated are causing this. What, what, what do you know of this? Well, we have a pre-vaccination era, right? So we have a, an era of time where we can't blame the vaccines because it was before the vaccine. So what did we have? We always had a blend of variants. So, so you know, the virus replicates. It makes it makes mistakes. There's mutations, and uh, you know, the gosh, there's thousands of these. So there's variants. There's variants of interest that we kind of know they, they get into a certain frequency. Then there's there's variants of concern, and um, so we've always had kind of without vaccines, we always had some variation in the variants of concern. What the vaccines did though is they put a non-selective evolutionary pressure to allow a super dominant variant to emerge. And that's what we saw with Delta for the first time. And Delta was the springtime and, and there are papers, one from Niso, Nissan uh, Mayo Clinic, one from Arcevito in South, South America, clearly shows the vaccination has actually caused the super dominant mutant problem. I mean, uh, Omicron was originally described in fully vaccinated people. So if we have a pan um, vaccine, let's say, let's say it can cover wild type alpha, beta, gamma, delta. That's immaterial since those strains are gone and are likely to reemerge. Uh, and, and let's say it covers Omicron. Well, the next one's going to be the next letter in the, in the alphabet that, that is going to basically beat the vaccine. <laughs> My theory on, on, on this, I want to get your take it, as somebody who's always worked with private 
practice physicians not part of large hospital systems it's really hard to get a hold of those guys and more and more the hospital systems are starting to control medicine at the community level i'm here in an underserved area yuma arizona and that's the, that that's definitely the case what i notice and i know it's just anecdotal but i want to get your take on this the hospital system physicians they tend to follow a script whereas the independent guys and gals they're more like you they're more like dr hayes and critical thinking do you notice this? Is this like something that you and colleagues discuss or is this like already well known and I'm just catching on late? And if you don't mind, Dr. McCall, before you answer, I'd just like to add one other part to that. How do you guarantee if you're admitted to a hospital that you get the treatment that you're seeking, right? I mean, they won't, they won't prescribe off-label, right? They're not going to give you ivermectin if, if that's what you choose to try and use. Um, they have their script they're following and they refuse to do anything else. Is there any way to force their hand in making sure that they give you what you want? I think everything you guys just said only applies to COVID. So listen, I've been an employed physician my entire life in big groups. I always make independent decisions and uh, I, we use drugs off label all the time. I use drugs off label all the time as a cardiologist. Nothing's changed. And so did all my other employed colleagues. So no, we don't, we don't follow a script. No, we, 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 we act independently. We use our best judgment and we always do shared decision-making. Everything is a negotiation. Today, I had a patient contact me. They, they were negotiating the price of one drug was too expensive. So I need to make another choice. When I'm done, I need to log into the EMR and get the, everything's a negotiation. It's called shared decision-making. What happened with COVID is people like myself, uh, Basically, you know, I continued my usual practice. I took care of patients. I, uh, you know, followed the medical literature. I used drugs that have a signal of benefit, acceptable safety. Uh, I did good clinical practice. I followed them up. I attempted to have them avoid hospitalization and death. But somehow other doctors didn't. They, they actually diverged from good clinical practice. They diverged from uh, clinically indicated, medically necessary, off-label use of drugs. And so yeah, why? Why and a large number actually diverged from usual practice. They did. Were and they so, pressured or like was there somebody I, I above? Think was, I think it was initially driven by fear. The first the first divergence is they stopped taking care of patients. So patients started getting COVID and they started saying, No, I don't take care of you anymore. And, and that was a giant divergence. Patients were you know enraged and said, Listen, I got a potentially fatal illness. I need some medicines. They're like, Nope, sorry, not gonna do it. I mean, that happened pretty early on. That happened March and April. And patients started to get really steamed over this. Like, wait a minute, how did this happen? And, you know, the innocent explanation is, well, the doctors didn't want to get COVID themselves. They didn't want to contaminate it or they didn't want to pick up some new medical legal risk with an unknown infection and, and whatever. But later on, it, it literally became lockstep and they weren't going to do anything for patients and they were going to wait for the vaccine. And then when hospital protocols rolled out, then hospital protocols became, you know, the great backstop for them. And they said, listen, well, we're, we're only going to follow the hospital protocol. I deliver innovative care to patients. The guidelines themselves aren't trustworthy, and that's in JAMA. Yeah. And there is no way to force their hand, right, to receive treatment that you desire as a patient. There's just no way, correct? You know, we've always used the word shared decision-making. People want to share in the decisions. 
Uh, we, we, we always talk about the principle of autonomy. The principle of autonomy in the end says the patient has autonomy over their body. So these two principles have been thrown out. The patient doesn't even have freedom to move around. They're in isolation. So I mean, this is unprecedented. So families have done all kinds of things. They've gone to court and they forced doctors to deliver care. Sometimes patients go to court and they, you know, for full dose anticoagulation and can't get the doctors to use full dose Lovenox or use other drugs. Um, uh, and it's, it's extraordinary what's going on. Then the hospitals are pressed through court orders. Sometimes the hospitals disobey court orders and, and then patients have to get outside physicians to come in and get temporary staff privileges just to give some simple medicines. So we're, we're in uh, really uh, uncharted waters of just awful patient-physician relationships, uh, mm. terrible patient outcomes. Do, do you know we're two years into this and no hospital <laughs> claims to be a center of excellence for COVID-19? Uh, do, do you know that no <laughs> hospital no hospital competes for patients, even though they're handsomely paid for it? You'd think the bigger medical centers would put billboards up and say, listen, if you're a sick COVID patient, come to our hospital, just like you're a sick Absolutely. cancer patient, heart patient. There's no bravado. Do you know there's no uh, uh, innovative uh, university uh, protocols, no Harvard protocol, no Mayo protocol that's unique or innovative? Uh, there's no innovative outpatient treatment. There's no innovative outpatient uh, treatment uh, protocols or centers. I mean, it's stunning. Think about so this. So where's the innovation going to come from? Like, the, you know, how's this going to end, do you see? Like, where is this going to come from? Well, listen, you've got to ask the question, what happened to academic medicine? What happened to it? I mean, that is a serious question to ask. It really is. That's a very serious question to ask. I mean, is suddenly the Mayo Clinic out of any intellectual capacity? Are they just are they just tapped? They can't think of anything to do for COVID patients? I mean, it's really stunning. It's absolutely <laughs> stunning. I mean, it's, not, you know, this isn't about some poor person in, uh, you know, in, uh, um, you know, a small Midwest town trying to get some ivermectin. This is about our iconic institutions not doing a thing for COVID-19 patients. You know, outside of reporting the news, I'm in a big Harvard consortium called Stop COVID. We're not stopping COVID. We're basically just databasing what happens to patients in the hospital and reporting that. We're reporting the news. It's not a very courageous protocol. I can tell you, I think Americans are very disappointed with academic medicine. Uh, that that, uh, that America has really let, let, let people down. There's, there's not an ounce of ingenuity. Yeah, it's not just medicine. It's, it's a number of different industries are, are falling short on what they should be doing for the American people. Yeah, the media. We won't go down that rabbit hole, but back to clinical research. You know, when the pandemic first started, I was like, you know what? The silver lining might be pharma gets to enhance their trust and their brand image. This is what I was naively thinking. I'm an optimist. They're going to be able to enhance their brand, their reputation. It's going to become easier for me as a researcher, as a clinical research site owner, to get patients to do our studies because it's less of a scary, mysterious thing, right? That's the silver lining. And what we have two years later is the complete opposite. It's going to be – Chris and I haven't even talked about this. It's going to be way harder now than before COVID yeah, to convince trust. patients yeah. to be in a clinical trial. Absolutely. It, Absolutely. I, I, and, and where are the clinical trials in COVID uh, as an outpatient? You know, I got involved in some, and what I saw is I was the overall principal investigator of the Romatriban program, a Japanese product. And, uh, you know, we worked so hard with Operation Warp Speed and the FDA. Uh, we did all the preclinical work. Japanese helped us. And Bear had a big grant. 
and every couldn't get off couldn't get off the ground on rametriban. It's an it's an anti-inflammatory anticoagulant. I, I was the uh, assistant for Ronan Kelly at my institution for the Imodulon program of a cell-based vaccine, like a BCG-like vaccine. Again, couldn't get off first base. I mean, we spent an enormous amount of time with protocols, IND applications, everything, and we could not get a clinical trial going. It was clear from the beginning it was going to be Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, and then uh, Novavax as a distant uh, straggler on this. And there was going to be little or no effort on the therapeutics. Now, two years later, we have kind of Pfizer and Merck limp over the line with some oral therapeutics. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just so late. They, they could have finished those trials in April. So, because, yeah, there's no incentive, I guess. Yeah. So, so uh, something I'm very curious about, um, and being that you have 660 peer-reviewed articles, you should be able to, you should be an expert on this question. Okay. Uh, how long does it usually take for an article to be peer-reviewed? And the uh, reason, I, the reason yeah. I, I'm sorry, the reason I ask is because of the Israeli study on natural immunity versus vaccine. Um, I think the paper came out about six, eight months ago. Is that is that a standard time frame, or is it typically longer? It, you know, it depends. Gosh, I've had some be two to four years. Um, okay. You know, it, it's just well, what happened in COVID nineteen. I'm the editor of a major journal. I can just tell you what happened. We basically agreed to use the preprint system, which you never used before, because it was going to take too long to get papers peer reviewed. It was going to take too long. So we had to get data out. So I told you the NIH uses ResearchGate. Uh, you know, others use uh, MedRx or they use Orthea. And so we agreed to use the preprint system and then evaluate papers ourselves on the data, not really care too much about the conclusions or the text, but actually evaluate the data. And then as they move forward and get published, that's fine. But we found tremendous censorship in the literature. You know, if you had a vaccine paper, it was gonna get to the front of the line and get published right away. But if we had a therapy paper, boy, we couldn't get a paper uh, across any journal's editor's desk. And to this day, yeah, yeah, to this day, vaccine papers uh, uh, outnumber therapy papers three to one. And remember, vaccine's not a treatment. And we've had, the, you know, we needed to treat patients to prevent hospitalizations and absolutely, deaths. Absolutely. So you can, you can see where this was. This was a, a vaccine. Uh, it was a vaccine train the whole time. There's been vaccine hubris and uh, and, and no one's really um, focused on treatment. It's, it's just, I'm going to have to finish up and then maybe one more question. Yeah. We'll wrap it up. Well, so can I go ahead, Dan, or do you Yeah, ask? go ahead. Go ahead. So it always amazed me how... Um, they were not considering natural immunity, right? When I say they, I mean the United States in particular. Um, when anybody with any medical knowledge knows that's something you should be considering. Um, it just amazed me with this Israeli paper that it just never really came to to the forefront. Um, and I don't know if, I don't want to go down conspiracy. Yeah, let's not hole, get this. We got to have a bet how long it's going to stay up on YouTube. <laughs> But, no, but, but I know what you're getting to is that, you know, what was really odd is that, um, and, and actually wrong, is that the FDA, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, always excluded the COVID recovered from clinical trials because they know with the legacy variants, you couldn't get COVID a second time. They knew that. And they knew that if you've already had COVID, you take a vaccine, you're probably going to cause harm. And in fact, that's been shown in three studies. So they were appropriately excluded. What's really wrong is to take any excluded group 
and then in a public EUA program, just say, go ahead and take the vaccine. Yeah. And then and then ultimately, you know, there are people with COVID recovered, they're actually being forced into taking the vaccine, mm-hmm. where, where, we, where we have no opportunity for benefit and we have studies showing clear harm. So now people know they're going to be bodily harmed. That's like personal injury. Does, does natural immunity provide any protection against Omicron? No, a binary, it looks like, no, my experience is it blows right through natural immunity, but it's a very mild syndrome. I had it myself. It's a few hours of warmth, maybe a little uh, nasal congestion, and then it's over with. So people have said, you know, I was on national TV last week. So was Marty Macri from Johns Hopkins. We both told America that, listen, it, it almost as if Omicron is like Mother Nature's natural booster. It's like it boosts uh, uh, natural immunity, boosts the vaccine immunity. It may be a little bit more of a severe syndrome for the uh, COVID naive unvaccinated, but there's not that many unvaccinated people left. Mm-hmm. So per- pretty much everyone's taking the vaccine, so they're COVID recovered. So, How does this end? Last question. How does this end in your best educated guess for COVID? And how does this end for your career? Like what's next for your career? as far as clinical research is concerned. Well, let me just say for COVID, I can't predict. It's very, very hard. I'm, I'm worried about reports now out of uh, Europe about now another strain, more virulent strain uh, that could, oh my gosh, if we end up with one of these hyperdominant strains, we're lucky Omicron so, so much more of a less virulent strain. Um, uh, so I just can't predict that how this is gonna, gonna happen. But mass vaccination will continue to propagate the pandemic. I think that's pretty clear. There was a huge, um, large real world analysis 145 countries i just tweeted out today it came out of edmonton out of a graduate uh, a student uh, but it's an excellent analysis it's clear the vaccines are prolonging and worsening the pandemic that's clear wow. um so yeah yeah so long as we keep vaccinating we're just going to propagate and worsen the pandemic for my career i've i've really taken a hard turn on COVID 19 in a sense i'd be i finished an infectious disease fellowship a COVID research fellowship and so I'm committed to stay the course in COVID-19 uh, and to see this uh, to the end. It may take the end of my, uh, you know, my practicing uh, career years to do it. I still practice internal medicine and cardiology, but mm-hmm. my phone's blowing up with COVID all day long. What about cardiology and internal medicine studies? Would you would you do those in your? Sure, in your I sure office? would. But right now, it's just it's a time constraint, yeah. and uh, it's 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 very hard. I mean, even some of our promising programs we had, we had to pause them because of COVID concerns, so. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. McCall. Before you go, doctor, I just wanted to give you props on, I watched your, um, uh, what, it's not an interview, your testimony on the te- uh, Texas uh, State Congressional House. Uh, great testimony. I Thanks. Really appreciated that. Thanks. Well, listen, I'm going to go give some fire down here at the uh, at the big stadium here in Phoenix. I got to go catch my ride. All right. Welcome thank to Arizona. Thank you very much for the interview. <laughs> All right. Thanks, you guys. Bye-bye. Have a good weekend. Bye.